Yes, uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn to the book of Daniel. Uh, we'll be from, from Daniel verses 1 through uh, to the end of the chapter, verse, wow, that's long. Okay, yeah, 21. Uh, yes, yeah, so, yeah, please turn to Daniel. Uh, it's a new series. So, when you get there, please rise as we'll be reading God's Word. This is the reading of God's word. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the king eunuch, to bring some people of Israel, both of the royal family and of nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the king of the Eunice gave them names. Daniel, called, Daniel he called Bateshazar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who signed your food and your drink. For why, for why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you will not endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had signed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our parents and the parents of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in the matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the used who ate the king's food. So the steward took away the, their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these youths, God gave them learning and skills in the literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end, at the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be bought, and the king of the eunuchs bought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke to them, spoke with them. Among them, no one was found more, was, found, was, not, was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every manner of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This was a reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Father, it is our prayer this morning that you would speak by your word through your servant and apply the good news of Jesus onto our lives. We ask, Lord, that you would help us see more clearly 
to hear more desiringly and to grasp with our hearts the things that you have set aside for your holy people. So speak, O Lord. We pray this in his name. Amen. We're beginning a new series in the book of Daniel. We bookmark our series in Acts, and for the summer months, we will be diving into Daniel's chapter 1 through 6. Now, the accounts of Daniel and his friends are probably very well known to many of us. You've probably grown up in VBS or Bible study hearing the stories, and perhaps you've even walked alongside your children as they do their study in the book of Daniel. It offers many juicy and low-hanging fruits with vibrant colors, shocking accounts, and good lessons. And even if you did not grow up in the church, I'm sure that these accounts and these stories are familiar even to you. There's the shocking scene where writing appears on the wall and everyone is, what does this mean? And we have songs written and even alluding to that scene. There's the infamous fiery furnace when men are thrown in and somehow they come out unaffazed. And of course, the notorious lion's den. And like all good stories, the main points are very simple. And at the same time, the older you grow, the deeper those simple truths seem to take root. In the coming weeks, we're going to study the life of Daniel as it parallels our own Christian life, our own Christian walk. And we're going to see that God's faithfulness is the umbrella that ties us all together in Christ Jesus. The book of Daniel not only offers a unique and personal perspective through Daniel as the main character, but it also offers us a bird's eye view of what is happening as God is the author and the main hero of this story. So we're going to see a lot of the things happening through Daniel's perspective and his friends, but we have to remember that overarching is God as the author and God as the hero of these accounts. And spoiler alert, by the end of the series in Daniel's 1 through 6, we will see that kings and kingdoms will come to an end as God's kingdom ultimately reigns, to which all things will be reclaimed, restored, and redeemed in his time in the one that he has chosen, Jesus. But the book of Daniel ultimately answers this fundamental question for us. This is the question. Can a citizen of heaven, can a Christian, can a citizen of heaven live faithfully in this sin-fallen world? Can a citizen of heaven, can a Christian, you and I, who have been born again in Jesus, live faithfully in this world that seems to go against everything that we believe, desire, and are running towards? Is it possible, or is it just some hopeful thing we think about once a week to get us through the week? Is that possible, to be faithful in our lives as Christians? To put it more poetically, we can look at Psalm 137 here, if you look up with me. And this is what the psalmist writes as he retrospectively ponders the time of exile in Babylon. By the waters of Babylon... There we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres. 
For there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And this is the question that the people ask as they are exiled in Babylonian captivity, as they find themselves in a different land, although citizens of a different country. How can we be faithful? Or in other words, how can we sing the Lord's song in such a difficult context? Now today we're going to look at three things that Daniel essentially says, not literally, but essentially says as he is living in between two worlds. And that's going to be the tension and the theme as we go through the book of Daniel, that as Christians, we are essentially living in between two worlds. As born-again Christians, we are born again to an everlasting life, yet at the same time we are here in the present world that is fading away. It is an already but not yet reality. And so we are stuck in between this time where the old is fading away and the new is coming. And Daniel, in some ways, is in a similar scenario. He was held captive, brought as an exile to the land of Babylon. And he is living in between two worlds. More importantly, we're going to see how we can say these things as Daniel does in light of Christ so that we can navigate our way faithfully through our lives. These are the three things we see that Daniel essentially says in our text, if you look up. First, I am at your service, but you are not my master. Second, you can change my name, but not my identity. Up there I have, but not who I am. You can feed me, but God sustains me. And these are three principles or maxims that we see Daniel essentially saying as his guiding principles, as he navigates his life in between these two worlds. And we'll see that you and I can say the same things in light of what Jesus has done for us in his life, death, and resurrection. So the first thing, I am at your service, but you are not my master. After Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem, he not only brought vessels and things from the house of God over to Babylon to add it to his own treasury, but he also brought some people along so that they may be added to his palace. Now we're told that these are the best of the best. They're of nobility and royalty. They are teachable. They are knowledgeable. They are filled with wisdom. And they're competent to stand in the king's palace. Much like our college students. Big ups to our college students. Where are you guys at? Okay, all right. Tough crowd today. And as we see Nebuchadnezzar take these young men, we see that they are to be re-educated and reprogrammed so that they may be brought into the service of Babylon, into the courts of Nebuchadnezzar to do his bidding. Now, there's something very a detail here, a little thing that's very easy to miss. Because up to this point, it's easy to think that Nebuchadnezzar was some just great warrior king who simply besieged Jerusalem by his own uh, military strategic, strategic ways and his strength. But this is not necessarily 
and entirely true. If we look in verse 2, look at verse 2 with me. It's an interesting detail. It says, The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, that's Nebuchadnezzar, with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Sinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Strange detail here, but we're told, stranger still the implications, that God is sovereign even over the besieging of Jerusalem as Nebuchadnezzar comes. What it's saying is that God allowed Nebuchadnezzar to take over Jerusalem here. Now to make sense of this, we got to go back a little bit in Israel's history and we see in the book of Jeremiah how God continues to warn His people, to teach His people, to guide His people, to discipline His people and say, come back. You are going astray. You are getting lost. You are worshiping things that are not God's. Come back to Me. Return, repent, and be restored. And over and over and over and over and over and over again, we see that the Israelites struggle with this. In Jeremiah 25, we see a little snapshot here, starting on verse 4. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all His servants, the prophets, saying, Turn now! Every one of you from his evil way and evil deeds and dwell upon the land of the Lord that the Lord has given you and your fathers from of old and forever. Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do you no harm that you have not listened to me. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. Now throughout the book of Jeremiah, we see that Nebuchadnezzar strangely is referred to as God's servant, an instrument that God chooses to use as he disciplines his people. So, to put it into perspective, even though the first few verses of Daniel tells us that this king came and besieged Jerusalem, in verse 2, immediately we are to understand that this was only allowed because God chose in His own sovereignty to use Nebuchadnezzar simply as a rod by which He will discipline His people and bring them back. And like a good and faithful parent who warns, disciplines, and restores their children, God does the same. Now, some of you guys have been around our parents, and some of you guys have seen parents at the grocery store, and it's always uncomfortable watching parents discipline their children, right? It's always a little bit uncomfortable. But there is much to learn when we're able to see parents discipline their children and when they're doing it well and faithfully. Let me give you an example. If a, if a parent tells their erring child that there will be consequences if they do not stop what they are doing, yet does nothing when the child persists, then the parent is not loving nor faithful to their word. Yet having given multiple warnings and calls to come back, if the child does not return, the parent must discipline and teach their child 
so that they would ultimately learn and come back in the safety and the presence and the love and the faithfulness of the parent who desires to nurture them. Same is true in the other scenario. If a, if a parent promises the child that they will go to Disneyland, if, if the parent can't keep their word in the times of discipline, what grounds does the child have to believe their parent when they promise things like Disneyland? You see, the child doesn't simply trust the promise depending on the promise itself, if they like it or not. The child can only trust the promise in so much as they trust the promise giver. If the promise giver is faithful, then the child knows whether in discipline or in blessing that the parent is faithful to them. Now, this may be a difficult thing to accept, But in God's judgment of Judah being besieged, we see his faithfulness. Like a parent who has warned their child time and time again, you are going astray, you are going into danger, you are going somewhere you should not be. Disciplining them now by the rod of Nebuchadnezzar to come back, to repent, to remember the goodness. We see here, Nebuchadnezzar, besieging Jerusalem as an instrument of God, as so-called a servant of God. So what needs to be said here is, no matter how many times we hear the name Nebuchadnezzar doing great things, he is simply the rod in which God is using in this moment to discipline and love his children. This means he's not truly king over anything. He's a momentary tool to the true king, God, whose only goal is to love, to steer, and to bring back his children. You know, this is also true for us as we are living in between two worlds, much like Daniel as an exile. Kings and kingdoms, rules and earthly authorities, corporations and bosses, jobs and earthly masters, you guys have them, I have them to some degree, and we all know that it's so easy to think that just because we are working somewhere, just because someone is giving us a paycheck, just because something is happening and people in power seem to be in control, that they are ultimately our master and dictator of our lives, our destiny, our desires, our duties, and so forth and so forth. It's easy to think that in our time as Christians, whatever your context may be, that whoever is above you is your master. But perhaps this morning we are being reminded that those who are above you in many ways are simply at best instruments and servants of God who is ultimately above you, whose ultimate desire is to love you, grow you, shape you and mold you to be more and more like a faithful child. In fact, we are to know that all things then are subservient to God who is the true king the true ruler, the true boss, the true El Jefe, the true master over all. And this is why Paul writes in Romans that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to purpose. How can Paul say that all things can work together for the good of those who love God? Well, because all things are under God's control and sovereignty. Because all things He is a master over. 
You see, in Christ, we also, you and I now, a little bit different than Daniel in his situation, but you and I now, on this side of the cross, we're no longer simply exiles living in between two worlds. We don't simply wait for heaven to come and make everything okay and the sin-fallen world to pass away as we stand idle and helpless. Now, 1 Peter 2 reminds us that we now in Christ are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into light. We may find ourselves in positions of servitude to our earthly masters and earthly bosses and the things that we may have to do. But as Christians living in between two worlds, we need to know that we are a royal priesthood and we will stand in his palace as his own possession. We are his servants and he is our true master. So whatever authorities, whatever earthly authorities you find above you, there is one higher. And we're going to see this type of layering. Whenever we see things going on on ground level with Daniel and his friends, we're going we're gonna to see that there's a Nebuchadnezzar or there's a ruler and authority above them. Yet at the same time, even above that, we'll see God constantly working in faithfulness. And so much like Daniel, we can say, I am at your service, but you are not my master. Christ is my master. He called me out of sin, out of darkness and into light. You may sign my checks, but God is my paymaster. Friends, will you trust us? I know jobs can be volatile. I know it doesn't feel good when, when things happen at work, when you feel overlooked. I know it feels like humiliation sometimes, the things we're called to do. But at the end of the day, whether it's at your workplace, whether it's just the endeavors of parenting, you might be at the service of other people, but God is your master. And he can orchestrate sovereignly all things to work for your good. Moving on, the second thing we essentially see Daniel say is that you can change my name, but not who I am. When Daniel and his friends were brought into captivity and trained up in the way of the Chaldeans, one of the first things that they did was give them new names, new homes, and new education. Essentially, like I said before, they were being redesigned, reprogrammed according to the Babylonian traditions, according to the traditions of their world. And this is often what happens as we reside in foreign lands as citizens of heaven. First, to some degree, our names or our identities are challenged and changed the world endeavors to try to shift our world view by its education and tradition. And then we are filled with things from the king's table so that we would look not elsewhere, but only to the things of this world. Now, names today are probably a little bit more of designations than identifiers. But in the context here, in these times, we see that names are deeply meaningful. Names connected individuals to the God who has created them and redeemed them and is faithfully watching over them. So the name Daniel, we see if you look up, and along with his friends, have 
deep meaning that ties them to Yahweh, to their God, their covenantal God. Daniel, his name means God is my judge. I forget which rapper had only God can judge me tattoo, but you can almost, Daniel, only God is my judge, right? Only God can judge me. And every time he's called by that name, Daniel, whatever situation he may be in, whatever temptations and struggles and doubts, he would know, you know what? At the end of the day, only my God who knows me, knows my heart can judge me. Hananiah, the Lord is gracious. You can almost imagine Hananiah through all the difficulties of life, through all the joys of life. Whenever he may hear his name called, he remembers that the Lord is gracious. And whenever others may hear his name, the Lord is gracious. The Lord is gracious. Mishael, who is like our God? Or, excuse me, who is what God is? Meaning, is there anyone like God or our God? Is there anyone like him? No. And he would know God's faithfulness as the one true God. Azariah, the Lord is a helper. And you can imagine whenever these individuals would hear their name, when others would call their name, they would be reminded of this reality of the covenantal bond, the deep, intimate, relational bond that people would have with the God that they serve and love. God is my judge. The Lord is gracious. Who is like our God? The Lord is my helper. And so what is the first thing we see happens? Their identity is challenged. Their name is taken away and changed, so to speak. Babylonians do away with their names. They try to cut the ties from their God. They try to strip them of their identity, their belongingness to their covenantal God. It was a way of saying, you now belong to us. You belong to our land. You belong to our gods. And they were given names associated with their pagan gods. And so the Babylonians hoped whenever they would hear their new names, they would forget that God is their judge, that they would forget the Lord's graciousness, that they would forget that God, Yahweh, is the only one true God, that they would forget the Lord is their helper. It's deep, right? In some ways it can be so subtle, but in other ways we see the apparent reality of what is happening to these young men. They're essentially being reprogrammed, re-identified. You know, recently I've been asked to officiate more weddings, and, and with that comes the joy of getting to know the couples uh, through premarital counseling. And we go through a various of things. We talk about the past, the present, the future. We talk about certain struggles and fears. But the one thing that I pray that every couple walks away with after our time is that they would know that marriage is about pointing one another to Christ. Marriage is simply about pointing one another to Christ. And how do you do that? How, how can couples do that? Two things, essentially, I try to remind them of from Scripture. First, your identity is in Christ. You've got to remind each other, honey, your identity is in Christ. Second, honey, this place is not our home. And those of you guys who've been married for a while and those of you guys who are, are married know that if you could just remind your spouse of those two things in times of struggles and trials, how, how intimate and gracious the Lord's presence falls upon you. In times of when your husband or your wife may feel so insecure about the job that they're at and the paycheck they're bringing in and the things they have to do, honey, 
Your identity is in Christ. Your worth is in Christ. Your value is in Christ. When your spouse comes home feeling left out or pushed out or, or so lonely, or, or, or they feel that this one mistake in the past still identifies them, you can say to them, honey, your identity is in Christ. Your value, your worth is in Christ. When they get looked over in the promotion or don't get the job that they want to secure for the sake of the family, honey, your identity is in Christ. Not simply as a dad who can buy the kids new toys or, or get us a new house. Your identity and your value and your worth is in Christ. When you take out the mortgage and you fill your home with beautiful things and in those walls you hear the laughter and the crying of your children, when all things seem to go well and then something happens that devastates you, honey, <clears throat> this world is not our home. It would sink in. Give us the reminder that the reality for Christians is that this is all temporary. Although it's good, although it's beautiful, although it gives us joy in those moments that it's temporary. And the reason why I believe the best thing a husband and wife can do for one another in their lifelong journey of marriage is to remind each other of these things is because essentially that's what being a Christian comes down to. Your identity and your belongingness. Who you are in Jesus and where you belong in his household. The world will do all that it can to change your name. And if it can't change your name, it'll try to give you credentials after your name to try to give you or infuse or pump some more value into you. If the world can't change your name, it'll give you other accolades to try to make us believe that somehow we can derive, earn, get, purchase, buy, claw some kind of better identity or and that's just not true. And it's not worth it. Your identity, your worth, your purpose, your goals, your ultimate destination in Christ is always in Christ. Amen? And therefore, we know the, the very well-known line that our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. God defines us and God has a room for us in His house. You can change my name. You can try to put all the credentials and all the. You can try to make me feel that those are the things I have to earn. But you can't touch who I am. I am his and he is mine. That's what we essentially hear Daniel and his friends saying in our text. That's essentially what you and I can say in light of our belongingness in Christ. Lastly, you can feed me, but God sustains me. Lastly, we see that Daniel's. A true sustaining comes from God and not from the table of the Babylonian king. First of all, I know some of us, when we read the Bible, we are immediately tempted to think uh, in the shoes of the main character, right? Like, oh, how do I, how do, how do I relate to Daniel? Or maybe in a peripheral, his friends. But I relate a little bit probably to the other fellows there. If our diet turned into a vegetarian one because this guy... I would sneak up in there in the middle of the night. Daniel, he took the meat, the chicken, the, the pork chops... Anyways, we see Daniel, for some reason, we don't know exactly why, decide to make a humble stand and not defile himself by eating and drinking from the king's table the food and the wine. And this is what he says. He humbly goes 
to the chief of the eunuchs and he says, I don't wish to defile myself. Will you allow me to simply eat vegetables and water? And the chief eunuch basically says, I don't know if I can do that. If the king sees that you guys are any less nourished or he sees that you're just skin and bones and you're not developing, then that's going to be my head. So Daniel says, then test us. Test us quietly. Give us only vegetable and water and see if not, we are more healthy than the others who are eating from the king's table and drinking from the king's chalice. And so we see that happens and we're told in 10 days time that Daniel and his friends in appearance look better. So much so that they shift the whole diet of these guys, poor guys. And, and by the way, if nothing, I'm just kidding. Vegetarian diet isn't the Christian diet. Although if you're a vegetarian, praise the Lord, it's okay. But that's not the point here. The point is this. The point is this. The point is this, okay? The point is that Daniel wanted to make a point that his sustaining, that his sustenance came from God, came from God's table and not the king's table. It was his way of showing that the world can feed me all its finest things, its choice wines. But I want to show you that simply from a humble and meager diet, that it's not necessarily the food itself that nourishes and builds up, but it's God who sustains, who strengthens, and allows us to stand. And so we see that he essentially says, you can feed me, you can tempt me, you can offer all the things of this world, but you cannot satisfy me and you will not sustain me. How often do we get tempted when we're on social media or when we're traveling? How, how, how amazing would it be to sit at the table of some of the most wealthiest people in the world, to get on their jets, to fly and have the gelato over there, to go to the mission? Michelin star and eat this dish, to sit amongst these people and drink all the, all the choice wines. How, how tasty, how delicious, how decadent would that life be? It would be probably pretty good. And some of you have probably tasted some of that, and some of you long for more still. But the truth of the matter is, no matter what the world can feed us, no matter how good the king's table over there in Babylonia seems, no matter how fine the grapes of this wine, no matter how fatty the cuts of the meat, no matter how decadent and delicious and tasty and luring the things of the world may seem. Our ultimate sustaining comes from God. And I've, and I've, I've alluded to this illustration before, but as Tim Keller reflects on his diagnosis in this one article, towards the end, he, he, he says something to this effect, that, that his, him and his wife, sometimes as they travel, particularly his wife, Kathy, as they go to um, a vacation or something, that immediately upon getting there, she would feel this sense of, like, existential, like, oh, like I don't know if I can enjoy it because I know it's going to end. And some of you guys can relate to that. I can relate to that. My children are like that. As soon as we go to a playground, for some reason, at times there's this like, but can we stay here forever? And they're like, no, don't you want to eat dinner? But can we come back? Can it last? Can I have more of this? And sometimes when we taste something good from this life, that's, we, we experience this kind of existential hurt because 
in that moment, there's this battle of attaching ourselves to it so much so where we want to just simply have it all the time. And Tim Keller explains that him and his wife realized the more that they, the, the more that they realized that this place is not their home, that these things are not forever, the better they're actually able to enjoy it simply for what it is, a vacation, a good spot, good food, because they know it's temporary, so they can enjoy it with that temporary outlook, yet at the same time have an eternal perspective to know that God sustains them, God loves them, and there are better things to have. So the Christian, the hope is not simply, hey guys, we can't live a decadent life. Enjoy the good food, enjoy the choice wines, but know that even if it fills you, it cannot sustain you. More so, know that when Christ returns, you know, sometimes, maybe, maybe irreverently, I, 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 you know, poke fun at our perspective of the Lord's table, right, when we take communion, especially now as we have these little dry wafers and these little cups of juice, you can't even, can't even get it. And sometimes we think, because that is the representation, we think that's what we're going to get at heaven. But that is pointing to Christ's body that was broken and his blood that was shed, which ultimately brings us in as sons and daughters of the kingdom, ushers and invites us and gives us a seat at the king's table so that we would feast on a wedding banquet. That's what we are to be reminded of when we take the Lord's Supper. That Christ's body was broken for us, His blood was shed for us, and that He will return. And we will be at a wedding banquet. So brothers and sisters, yes, this world can feed you, but it will not sustain you. And perhaps this morning as we conclude, perhaps we need to repent, much like the Israelites, and turn back to the Lord. Perhaps we have forgotten of who God is and who we are. And, and where our lives are going. Perhaps some of us put on too quickly the false identities of this world. Perhaps some of us hold too firmly to our belongings. Perhaps some of us are so full, yet at the same time unsatisfied by the food and drinks from the so-called king's table. So can a citizen of heaven live faithfully as an alien in a sin-fallen world? Yes, then to answer the psalmist's questions, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? The answer is, we shall sing of His faithfulness. Great is Thy faithfulness. Great is Thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, Thy hands have provided. Great is Thy faithfulness. Lord, unto me. Let's pray.